Today, for the first time, we present the Anglo-Irish public with an independent weekly review written from first to last from exclusively Irish standpoints. That which, with no qualifications, we could call Ireland a nation is very far off. Parliaments alone cannot restore it. To us it means a self-governing land, living, moving and having its being in its own language, self-reliant, intellectually as well as politically independent, initiating its own reforms, developing its own manners and customs, creating its own literature out of its own distinctive consciousness, working to their fullest capacity the material resources of the country, inventing, criticising, attempting and doing. With those words, D.P. Moran introduced his paper, The Leader, and its ideals to the Irish public 66 years ago. He went on to contrast the ideal with the reality of life in Ireland at the turn of the century. England, he said, was not our only enemy. The English government does not make us drink too much. It does not compel us to buy English gutter literature. It does not ask us to believe that the present can be righted by eternally proving that we were cheated in the past. Notwithstanding its persistent efforts, it never had the power to compel us to drop our language. We did that ourselves. The government does not make us talk bombast, nor inspire our sunbustry speeches, and it does not edit all our daily and weekly papers. Whatever else the British government did or did not do in Ireland, it was obvious that it did not edit the leader. This remarkable paper, for which the first number very forthrightly set the tone, was a follow-up to a series of articles which had appeared in the New Ireland Review in 1899 and 1900. Dr C. P. Curran recalls them. The articles were forceful and well-written in advocacy of Irish manufacture and the Gaelic League, and in general by what through him came to be known as Irish Ireland. They attracted general attention and I have reason to remember them because when Ned Kent and his friend Inglesby started a branch of the, of the Gaelic League in Fewsborough, I led them to its first foundation members. Morden came back to Ireland immediately afterwards to found the leader, of which he was the proprietor and lifelong editor. It maintained his characteristic style, virile and outspoken, in its national propaganda, beyond anything in our journalism uh, except the United Irishman, which had just then been founded by Arthur Griffith and William Rooney. In the years that followed, Griffith's United Irishman and Moran's leader were often read by the same people. Cahal O'Shannon, for example, was a reader of both, and he was introduced to the leader in his hometown in Draperstown, County Derry. The leader used to be got every week by a tailor who lived not very far from me named uh, Johnny Kane. I had an impression, whether it was correct or not, uh, that Johnny at one time had been a ribbon man, but that might have been a wrong impression, but it was the way that he, that he talked. Well, he was a devoted reader of the leader, and I used to swap with him every week. Uh, I uh, got Arthur Griffiths, uh, United Irishman, and then uh, Sinn Féin, and we swapped uh, these papers. Uh, I remember very well that in St. Columns College, where I was at the time, that was uh, from about 1904 to 1907, uh, that uh, the leader was not allowed into uh, the college, into the library or anything like that. I think more than the leader had criticised uh, some 
Catholic Church in the diocese, or maybe in Derry City, uh, for uh, West Britainism or something like that. He was very strongly uh, anti-West Britainism. He was a great Irish Islander, and uh, while his uh, leader had a big circulation among the clergy, particularly among the parish priests, and a great influence among them. Uh, he could be critical from time to time, and especially uh, of Catholic schools or uh, Catholic churches in which he detected uh, what he would call uh, humbug or West Britainism. He was very fiercely uh, satirical. Professor Liam O'Brien also remembers the early days of the leader and Moran's impact on his readers. I was only about 12 or 13 years of age when he came back, I understand, from, from London and, uh, and started this paper here, which made a sensation uh, in town straight away by the freshness of the note that was in it, you know, and the, 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 the pricks he gave the conscience of the, of the, of the Catholic population uh, of the country. It was, of course, a frankly Catholic paper. And he went for, however, the, the uh, right-wing Catholics, what he called the, the Castle Catholics, the Tlangonian Catholics, but especially the, the Shonians. The Shonians. I have an idea that Morden was the inventor of the expression, the Shonians, and all everything in the way of trotting after the, the ascendancy. Things like presenting purses of sovereigns to uh, RSE sergeants and that sort of thing, which uh, could be done by self-respecting nationalists. God help us in those days. Just how denationalised Ireland was in the early years of the century may be gathered from the papers of the time. One reads, for example, of Kilrush Urban Council boasting of the number of Kilrush boys in His Majesty's Navy and humbly requesting His Majesty's Government to send a warship to be stationed at Scattery Roads so that many more might join. Tralee is petitioning the Duke of Connaught to make that town a military headquarters and the Tuam Herald is urging a royal residence at Kyle Moor to popularise the West. D.P. Moran compared the position to that obtaining during the reign of Elizabeth I, when the mere Irish had not only to fight their natural enemies, but the Queen's Irish as well. The Queen's Irish were never so numerous as they are today, and to add to their effectiveness, they dressed themselves in green. But the penetrating eye of the Gaelic spirit is beginning to see through the disguise. The next few years will decide for all time whether the Gael is to lift up the Irish race once more or whether the Pale is to complete its effacement. The man who hurled himself so forcefully into the campaign to make Ireland Irish once more, what sort of person was he? C.P. Curran. He was burly, humorous and knowledgeable. I saw most of them at the Purser's uh, at her, in her cooperative store, store uh, and toured Lina in Pembroke Street. He had got to Norrell in the Irish Industrial Association at a time for which, uh, at which she had invented a little badge which marked goods of Irish manufacture. I got to know him better in Antwerd Lina and found them in one respect alike, for they both liked controversy and downright talk. The chief work in Antwerd Lina was a stained glass, and the chief artist at that time was the well-nigh incomparable Michael Healy, whose sideline of amusing caricatures would later appear in special numbers of the leader. D.P. would put himself forward as a Philistine in the matter of letters or the other arts. He was, in fact, no such thing. 
Daniel Corkery, for example, first came under my notice in the early pages of The Leader, and it has regular contributions, uh, contributors, competent and well-written, like Arthur Cleary and Willie Dawson, who wrote under the pseudonyms of Chanel and Avis. Alec McCabe remembers him. I met him several times at parties outside, and then I was in his house one side a long evening with him. What sort of a man was he? Well, he was a genial and sociable character, and I thought him quite, quite nice to meet with, and uh, you wouldn't uh, associate him with some of the acid comments he was making on the world outside. Cahal O'Shannon. He struck me as a, uh, a big man, uh, big physically, uh, and uh, as Padre Collins said of him, uh, that uh, he had uh, an aggressive look uh, that would remind you of portraits of Dan O'Connor. He was that uh, kind of a man. Liam O'Brien. He himself was a little blocky man who, as people said, was like Dan O'Connor. They had a good crack made about him by Charlie Power, afterwards uh, Judge Wise Power, who said that he wasn't so much like Dan O'Connell as like the picture of Dan, o Dan O'Connell, which was on the label of the bottles of O'Connell's ale, like popular beer at the period, so, <laughs> which was very true. Nuala Moran, DP's daughter, who took over the leader after his death and still edits it. Well, he was a homely, approachable man of simple tastes and very fond of family life often telling us amusing incidents of his youth in his native Waterford City. He told us of his school days at Father Joe Phelan's private academy and later as a boarder with his brother Jim at Castanlaw College. He went to London in his very early teens, probably because his brother Jim was making good there. And he remained in London for 13 years working as a journalist. The only paper I recall him mentioning was The Star, a paper associated with the name of Bernard Shaw. However, Shaw had presumably left the staff when my father joined it and they never met. Perhaps it's just as well. The paper which Moran founded to make Ireland more self-reliant was written largely by himself and was stamped with his own personality. But he also gathered round him some very distinguished contributors. Leon O'Brien knew, knew more about these, he said, than about Moran himself. It seemed to me that any time I, I dived into the water at Sea Point, I came up beside the rotund and jovial Arthur Cleary, whose law classes I attended in UCD and who gave his students an annual dinner. Chanel was the pseudonym he usually employed in the leader. Father Deneen, of course, I knew what Dubliner didn't, and uh, Sean O'Keirasa, who succeeded him, using a variety of names, Clough-Lowrish, Lach-Low, and so on. These two men between them supplied a, a weekly article in Irish of unique quality, for I'm sure 40 years, and before either of them, uh, and uh, much before my time, the great uh, Canon O'Leary wrote for the paper. The man who wrote under the name of uh, Imal, I knew to nod to uh, during a couple of years I spent in the headquarters uh, of the Department of Education in Hume Street. He was the chief clerk of the secondary branch. One could guess from his pen name that he was a Wicklow man. 
He was, in fact, uh, John O'Toole and something of a recluse. Uh, but almost as influential, in a way, uh, through the columns of the leader, as another civil servant, Shan Hall, was in Arthur Griffith's Sinn Féin. Cahill O'Shannon also knew many of Moran's contributors, Jean O'Keeris and Piers Baisley in particular. And those he didn't know personally, he knew through their writings. Then he had a, he had a younger lot, uh, particularly young men from the Young Ireland branch, uh, of the United Irish League. Uh, there was, I don't remember whether C.H. Skeffington was a contributor, but the Young Ireland branch uh, uh, were a sort of intellectual but critical uh, branch of the League, a young branch in, in Dublin. Uh, Moran used to write about the Hibs, that was the ancient order of Hibernians, Joe Devlin's lot, and the Yibs, the Young Ireland branch. So you'd see from time to time the Hibs and the Yibs. One of the contributors from the Yibs uh, was uh, Cruz O'Brien, the father of the present Conor Cruz O'Brien. Uh, he, he wrote very well. I remember he did a number of profiles for uh, Moran and the leader, one of them on Joe Devlin, the MP, uh, who was a great uh, orator, a great uh, parliamentary uh, figure and all that, and a powerful man in the Home Rule movement. Uh, I remember that uh, Cruz O'Brien... Uh, among other things in this profile, described him as uh, a gentleman in private life, but a blackguard in politics. Trenchant comments like that were not unusual in the leader, but the most trenchant were generally the editor's own. He covered a wide range of subjects, and church art was just one of them. DP was at that time at pains to forward particularly church work, and these early pages carried much judicious criticism by Edward Martin and Robert Elliot of Church Decoration, which at that time uh, was at a very low ebb. In that respect, uh, Armagh and Lachray Cathedral were in violent contest, as I suppose they still are. At the beginning of the century, Cardinal Logue admitted wholesale the most gaudy display of Italian pseudo-art, to Armagh, and his example was slavishly followed elsewhere. Munich stained glass debased all our churches, but Clonfert set a new headline under Martin's, uh, instig- uh, at Martin's instigation, uh, and the example of Michael Healy, Francis O'Donoghue, and other craftsmen gradually followed, particularly in the West with architects like Smith, like Smith and Butler, to mention only the dead. D.P. Morton was zealous in their encouragement and in the fostering of, the, of other crafts. Moran was not content merely to denounce the shoddy imported article. He was even more concerned that there should be in this country a positive attitude to the promotion of Irish-made goods. He had great uh, drive... Uh, very pungent uh, uh, in his uh, comments, but especially on uh, the uh, industrial side. And he was largely, he was very much interested and was one of the men who really brought about the uh, industrial development associations and the Irish trademark and that uh, kind of thing. And he did uh, great work. He, his uh, uh, his uh, drive on that was uh, go into a shop, uh, ask for... Uh, if you 
for whatever goods you want. Ask them to be Irish and insist that they give you Irish. Insist on that, no matter uh, what they say. Even if you have to pay a little more for it, it will it will do uh, uh, good. But then the manufacturers or the industrialists who didn't come up to a standard or who didn't meet customers halfway or who didn't advertise their goods or anything like that, uh, he used to call them dark brothers. And he would name them as a dark so-and-so as another dark brother and he would tell all about it. Moran had no time for those trade promotions which merely aped something done in England and may not even have employed Irish labour. Alec McCabe recalls one exhibition which incurred his wrath. It was held in Dublin in 1907. He called it Humphrey's Dump. It was the international exhibi- an international exhibition. And I think it was mainly organised to receive the king with a view to getting a number of... Uh, knighthoods bestowed on the people that were connected with it. And uh, uh, he found, he discovered that a lot of the orders for, for in, with regard to this exhibition, the catering for instance, was given to a London firm. And a lot of Irish firms were deprived of a chance of, of, of uh, well, quoting for or, or making an effort to cater for, 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 the, for other aspects of the exhibition. Did his hostility to this particular exhibition have any effect on it? Well, I don't think it did it any good, anyhow. But still, uh, it, it was it has it lost a hundred thousand pounds on the on, on the on the business, and the guarant the guarantors had to pay up for it. Um, Mr. Martin William Martin Murphy, for instance, uh, he was the chairman of the finance committee, a very clever man, and uh, through his what, what uh, Morton called this halfpenny dreadful. The independent at that time was, was lowered to a halfpenny for competition, but uh, he accused Murphy of trying to get a knighthood for himself, but uh, the knighthood uh, didn't materialise in any case, and uh, I don't believe Murphy was very anxious for it, or otherwise, with the influence of, the, of his paper, he could, I'm sure, have got a, a, a knighthood if he wanted yes. it. Do you think he might have done more harm than good with some of these nicknames? Well, I don't know. They, they deserve, some of them deserved it at the time. The ascendancy were very much in control of appointments in, in all the big industries and the big uh, public concerns like the railways and these places. And uh, it uh, stirred up uh, interest in it. And uh, mm. this kind of uh, names were popular in politics at the time. Yes. Uh, this abu- these abuse of names, and uh, it was kind of a part of the. It appealed to people generally. A. E. George Russell was one of Moran's pet aversions. Leon O'Brien. In those days, uh, in the late twenties, I did a few book reviews for A. E.'s Irish Statesman, and had met the great bewhiskered man himself. Every time I saw him, I remembered the name that D.P. Morden gave him, the Hairy Fairy. Spelling it during the Kingstown Dunlary controversy, Hairy, H-A-O-G-H-A-I-R-E, and Fairy, F-A-O-G-H-A-I-R-E. To call A.E. a Hairy Fairy was magnificent. It evoked not merely the physical appearance of the man, but the, 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 the fanciful uh, otherworldliness of so much of his poetry and painting. I, I don't know who it was uh, 
maybe D.P. himself, who wrote the satirical verse in the leader in the early days. Later, an ex-British soldier, A.M.W., used to it. Some of this was first-rate. When, for instance, the controversy was on before the First War about uh, Englishmen getting all the plum jobs in the post office headquarters in Dublin, a poem was written about Arthur Hamilton Norway, whom Morden called Norway the Dump. Norway, who was the father of the novelist Neville Shute, had allegedly been dumped here by the postmaster general of the day, Herbert Samuel, who was mentioned in the opening verse. Uh, here's how it went. Hi there, Mr. Samuel. Just take your stray away. They always come nosing round about whenever it's feeding day. We've plenty of barking here for bites without us feeding him. So, mister, just call him off at once. There's no one that's needing him. She will have to get a notice board to leave at Kingstown Pier to tell your strays and your trespassers whenever they come to clear. And Dublin Corporation will have to get a pound to keep all your strollers safe for ye that we get a rambling round. Here he is for you, mister. Take and lug him away. We'll not have his likes and nosing round whenever it's feeding day. The English exclusiveness practised in the public service was not the only one attacked by Moran and the leader. There was an Irish exclusiveness as well, based on religion and fostered by those whom Moran called sour faces. This word he applied not to Protestants as a whole, but to those who would deny Catholics their share of whatever jobs were going. At the time, the ascendancy were more or less control of their railways and the uh, banks and, and big, uh, big business like that, and uh, the Catholics hadn't, no, had no chance of getting jobs there. So he made a fierce attack on the, on the, on the post office and on the, the railways, and he succeeded in getting a, a, an examination system established in the, for, the, for the railways. He, um, he is, uh, along with that, he also he got uh, Irish introduced into the, into the examination for these scholarships, or for these examinations. Uh, I think that was a great, one of the biggest achievements. And then... He had, he had also interested in the post office where uh, cases he was regular, regularly discovering cases where uh, post office of big, the higher echelons of the post office were being imported from England and uh, appointed to big jobs all over the country. Well, he, st- he stopped that more or less by getting, quest- getting the parliamentary party to ask questions in parliament about it. And, uh, it, uh, they, they didn't, uh, I think he's more or less arrested that, uh, that uh, tendency. Moran and the leader were not enthusiastic about many of the manifestations of Anglo-Ireland. Even poets like Yeats, who felt that they had something distinctively Irish or Celtic to contribute to the literary revival in English, received little encouragement from him. A certain number of Irish literary men have made a market, just as stock jobbers do in another commodity, in a certain vague thing which is indistinctly known as the Celtic note in English literature. An intelligent people are asked to believe that the manufacture of this Celtic note 
is a great symbol of an Irish national intellectual awakening. This, it appears to me, is one of the most glaring frauds that the credulous Irish people ever swallowed. I hope no one will think that I am attacking the Celtic note from an English literary point of view. I am looking at it merely from the point of view of the Irish nation, of which it is being put forward as a luminous manifestation. Beyond being a means of fame and living to those who can supply the demand, what good is the Celtic note in English literature to the Irish nation? What good is it to any, except the owners of them, that Irish names figure largely in current English literature? A happy pass we have come to when we cry out with joy because of the gifts we have given our enemies. The great common source of many Irish ills more than held was the lack of Irish heart. Anglo-Ireland, he said, had no heart at all. Liam O'Brien. I think his attitude there was rather, uh, rather suspicious, almost rather contemptuous, if I'm not mistaken. Well, uh, and in that, if I called Yeats a fraud, I think. Yes, he was. He, he was mistaken himself. The, the 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 poets were easy marks. Poets are always easy marks, you know, even down to the present day. And uh, and uh, uh, some of them, were, of course, they were they were mostly Protestants, and therefore he would, he'd be suspicious of them, suspicious of the genuineness of their uh, approach to or their rapprochement with 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 Irish nationalism. Yes. If I'm not mistaken, I hope I'm not doing him an injustice, but I'd say something like that would have been his attitude towards them. Would you say, as some people said, that he was more Catholic than the Pope? Yes, I'd be inclined to say that. Of course, uh, he wasn't alone there. Ireland has always been full of people who are more Catholic than the Pope. As we have heard already, however, if something deserved criticism, it did not escape Moran's attention just because it was Catholic. In fact, some of his harshest words were directed towards those who could hardly be regarded, or so one would have thought, as natural enemies. In the early days of the United Irishman, and before the IRB became a force in the land, with my friends uh, Hobson and Dinny McCullough, he called our party the Tin Pikers. At this time, the term Kettle called them the Pope's Blackthorn and Waiting. D.P. was a parliamentarian, but choosy as to his personnel and policy. He had, in truth, a mind of his own. I don't think he belonged explicitly to any party except the Gaelic League. In politics, uh, I would say that he was rather moderate, uh, perhaps a home ruler, but not, uh, not a, what you would call a strong supporter of the Irish Parliamentary Party. He uh, reminded the politicians that there were more movements in Ireland and from home rule, and that the other movements were essential uh, to the saving of the nation. The other movements, particularly in which he were interested, he was interested, was the economic and industrial movement, and uh, the what you would might call the cultural, especially the Gaelic League and the language movement. He used to say, he used to drive home to the politicians uh, that there was much more to be done uh, and could be done. Uh, by the people relying on themselves and doing things for themselves and not waiting, as the home rule leaders uh, were inclined to do, until we'd get home rule and be able to make uh, laws for ourselves. All of which sounds very much like the policy of Sinn Féin. Why then Moran's antipathy to Griffith? Uh, well, for one reason, that he was more uh, industrial than he was political, although he did believe in Ireland, the nation. Uh, but he wasn't very keen on the political side of the thing at all. 
uh, and uh, he, he used to make fun uh, of the Sinn Féin people and I think that he probably had a quarrel at some time or other uh, with Griffith uh, over uh, the coming of Yale or Griffith's National uh, Council. Uh, I think that was probably the reason and Griffith's, uh, if you would call it antagonism or Griffith's uh, uh, dislike of him was uh, that while he went part of the way he didn't go all the way and then he had another, as I say he was a great man for uh, making phrases uh, he, he made one phrase uh, and was Collar the King uh, his idea was, as he described it in Collar the King it was that the Irish should not allow the ascendancy people or the unionists to get away with everything like that, but they should call her the king and just be as loyalist uh, as they were Irish, uh, as the Scottish were uh, loyalist as well as uh, Scottish. And I think that that was one of the reasons why he disliked Sinn Féin and everything that went Sinn Féin. Moran's Colour the King period was just after the death of Queen Victoria and the accession of Edward VII to the throne of England. Many people thought the king was more favourable to Ireland and home rule than his predecessor, but Moran's suggestion went much further, and his attacks on the tin pikers, the give-me-a-rifle-and-let-me-away men, as he called them, provoked immediate reaction. C.P. Curran. This policy found no favour down in Abbey Street, where the Celtic Literary Society the headquarters. Mm-hmm. And as a result, when the next St. Patrick's Day procession passed through Abbey Street, their adherents took possession of the horse and carriage in which D.P. Morden was drawn and brought him out of the procession to to the satisfaction of their party. And much to the satisfaction, too, of Sean O'Casey who wrote about it years afterwards. Here he comes. Here's the boy, oh, the greatest champion Ireland's language has, who hardly knows a word of it himself. The one who said tin pike men and hillmen shall be clapped into jail to keep them out of mischief. Who says that the influence of England's majesty shouldn't be left to Protestant sour faces, and that the Catholics must colour the king. Sir Galahad Morn had gone forth to the battle with his lance of Ellis, defender of the faith with his shield of four beautiful green fields, with the coins of the realm proper superimposed on a Roman cross. Sean O'Casey was in his way as much an Irish Irelander as Moran, but even on the language question it was unlikely that two such individualists would be in complete agreement. They crossed swords at least once in the leader. The correspondence was because my father criticised in the leader round about 1924 an article in the Irish Homestead, uh, A.E.'s paper, which actually my father considered, uh, he considered it a bitter enemy of the Irish language. Uh, The article was contributed by Sean O'Casey and entitled Irish in the Schools. O'Casey replied suggesting that a debate be held between the two of them exclusively in Irish and that no one but those qualified to wear the fornia be admitted. Probably he knew my father was not a fluent Irish speaker. How much Irish did he know, in fact? My father? Uh, 
Well, he uh, he never succeeded in speaking Irish, even moderately well. He had no chance to visit the Gaeltach for prolonged periods, though he paid some of the southern Gaeltachs flying visits. The first fish he ever tended was the Balavurni fish before the foundation of the leader. Of course, he could read Irish quite easily and did so as a relaxation. Moran's concept of Irish Ireland, thus named by himself, was the great passion of his life and of his paper. It was in that sphere, too, that his influence was greatest. Leon O'Brien was one of the many young men who came under his spell. I saw him, rightly, I think, as an outstanding individualist, a sort of prophet, a man who made of his own brand of humorous and vituperative journalism an instrument for changing the face of things. He wanted the Irish man to be Irish, to cast off the English rags that he wore, to be self-reliant and self-respecting. And that rare idealism, I'm glad to say, still pervades the leader. Many of my contemporaries uh, learned Irish and uh, a limited amount of Irish Irelandism without really knowing why. In the leader, we, we found reasons for the faith that was in us. Uh, these were live, contentious issues, uh, and some of them are still with us. And Morden went into them uh, flailing right and left. He, he throve on controversy. And, of course, his pugnacious style helped to sell the paper. I remember it was on... Uh, the issue as to whether there was such a thing as a distinctive Irish or Gaelic mind that I made my first appearance in the paper. And uh, I found myself confronting a formidable opponent in Diarmid O'Sullivan, better known perhaps as Diarmid O'Dina. It developed into a dogfight, in the course of which my debating methods were likened to those of, the, of a fifth-rate country attorney. Morden enjoyed the row immensely, and was mortified when I told him I'd had enough. He didn't see why I shouldn't carry on. I'm glad I didn't, because I'm old enough now to know that there is indeed, or was, an Irish mind, although I had argued strongly then that there wasn't. One of Moran's most energetic campaigns was against excessive drinking and the influence of the publicans. He was able to announce a great victory when the pubs closed on St Patrick's Day, 1903. Bung got a bad beating in Dublin on St. Patrick's Day. There was no glory about his defeat. It was ignoble, nay, in some respects, full of treachery. Daniel Fallon, keeper of the magic button, at the touch of which Bung was to stand up as one man, ought by all the laws of chivalry have been in the vanguard of the fight. But Daniel went back of Bung's famous letter and kept his drunkery closed. Lawrence Kyo, emperor, likewise proved traitor. His drunkery at Marlborough Street was shut up when we passed it, and an ordinary envelope was stuck on the window with an inscription to the effect that the Emperor's temple was closed for the day. Alderman Delahunt, the ex-Emperor, also shut up. Last St. Patrick's Day was a turning point for Ireland. It was another for Mr. Bung. Moran had much to say over a long period about the drink question, and from some of it one might form a picture of a far-from-liberal man. This picture, says C.P. Curran, would not be an accurate one. 
DP was no fanatic. He wasn't even, I think, a total abstainer. But he deplored the extraordinary multiplication of public houses in our country towns. In his campaign against what he called bung, he was partially successful, but he had to wait for Kevin O'Higgins for its ultimate reform. When we asked Liam O'Brien if he thought Moran was inclined to be a bit puritanical on these matters, he said... Yes, I think he was. Oh, I'd say, well, it's the morality of the period, but there stood no nonsense uh, in that line at all, you know. Uh, as regards everything in the shape of what you call evil literature and everything like that, his mind was clear in these days, not like nowadays. What about his attitude to drink and the pubs, bung, as he called them? Yes, that also. That also part of his general movement towards the, the, the lifting up of the Irish people towards a more self-respecting attitude. In all these directions, I think Morden did a great deal of good in these days, in these early years of, of, the, of, the, of the 20th century. Even if he stood for a certain stodgy form of uh, man on the street or business like a uh, sort of nationalism which excluded uh, the poetry and romance of the movement and uh, all that, you might say, the, 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 the spiritual side of nationalism, using spiritual in a non-religious sense. And uh, but certainly, that's uh, an example, he opposed strongly the, 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 the excessive drinking, which was a feature of the life of the period, you know, uh, even more than nowadays, because people ate less than nowadays. And I think you remember yourself, the closing of the pubs on St. Patrick's Day. Oh, be Jove, I did. I do, indeed. That was a great victory, especially for the Gaelic League, uh, when uh, uh, the pubs were all closed on Patrick's Day. Some years later... Uh, <laughs> I can remember meeting a president of the Gaelic League and the two of us going round, going round half Dublin, looking for some place where we could slake our thirst and not being able to find it. Mm. That, was, that was nemesis with a vengeance. On numerous other subjects of interest to Irishmen, D.P. Moran had opinions to express. On Irish dancing, for example, he asked, Why do we not evolve, we will not say invent, new types of dancing along the Irish tradition? that the, cu- the custom of all normal countries are subject to national and natural evolution from century to century, if not from generation to generation. But we tend too much, when we profess to be national, to worship the bones of our ancestors. For older people, he argued, many Irish dances of what, for a better word, might be called the glide type were needed. At a time when Irish traditional music had fewer supporters than it has now, Moran was an enthusiast. One of the things he enjoyed most of all was listening to my mother playing the piano and singing. She had, in fact, learned traditional Irish airs to please him. He himself loved Irish music, though he knew nothing about it technically, and he did much to encourage it through the medium of the leader. The greatest tribute to Moran's work for Irish traditional music was probably paid him by the famous Father Seamus O'Flynn of Cork, writing in 1918. When he began in 1900, the Gaelic League was powerless against an organised Shoninism, and the Sinn Féin cause was in embryo. He drove his paper like a tank through the stubborn Anglicised mob. They shot at him without effect. He was speaking of the beauties of traditional Irish music when no man had the pluck to sing a traditional song in the company of the wagtails. He cleansed the halls of the country of dirty music all ditties and created an atmosphere for the Irish singer in Ireland. 
To the GAA, as to every other worthwhile national institution, Moran offered encouragement and, from time to time, criticism. He didn't like the way the GAA was running at the beginning. He was, uh, he was very critical of their, of their, their, their ways they were organised. For instance, at betting, there were bookies were to be found at all the big Gaelic games, shouting their odds, and there were merry-go-rounds and uh, trick of the lobes and things like that at all these big football matches. And uh, the result was he got, he got the GEA considerably purified as a result of these attacks. On social problems too, Moran spoke out as occasion demanded, though his tendencies there would be far from socialistic. But he thought that uh, Irish workers uh, should have a fair pay, though he didn't go into it uh, uh, particularly. Uh, he didn't uh, declare himself on trade unionism, not as far as I remember. But of course, uh, to tell the truth, uh, it was only uh, from time to time I never saw uh, his paper, the leader, for one reason or another, uh, and I may have missed uh, things like that. At the same time, says Nola Moran... Well, he had great sympathy for the working man and working women... And he wrote himself on the subject in The Leader, and he published many articles for, from contributors on all aspects of this over the years. Well, as regards women's rights, while he had no time for the antics of suffragettes of the extreme type or of women aping the ways of men, he was all for encouraging any women to enter public life if they wanted to do so. I remember he had one amusing anti-suffragette cartoon. He always thought of the cartoons himself. Depicting a severe suffragette scolding her maid for breaking a cup and saucer. And then in the next panel of the cartoon, the mistress was seen going off with a hammer to break windows. Yes. There were many women contributors to the leader, of course. Very many. And what's more, they wrote under their own name. Uh, a lot of the men used pen names. Moran's great period of influence on Irish life and thought may be said to have ended in 1916. The success of Sinn Féin left the national initiative in other hands, but independence of mind and forced rightness of expression were still the great qualities of the leader when he died in the editorial chair, so to speak, in 1936. Many of the objectives Moran set himself in the leader in 1900 have been achieved. Many of his most cherished ideals have not. In particular, his Irish Ireland has not materialised. In fact, the Irish language is subject today to a hate campaign which only the most virulent anti-nationalists would have dared to mount in his heyday. The man who sought to rid us of our inferiority complex as a nation and, as Louis J. Welch said, put backbone into Ireland, would still have much to do and say today about the things that could be done and ought. <laughs>